King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship that golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have not served my gods? You do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O oh, king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O oh, king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship in the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king. He replied, But I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their horses laid in ruins. For there's no god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel 3 is a work of subversiveness and nonviolent resistance. This is a narrative of civil disobedience. It's not a narrative of facile patriotism or of good citizenship or of merely personal piety. To get to the heart of Daniel 3 is to understand it through a political lens. The whole book of Daniel is political in nature. This book was written to encourage the faith of the politically subordinated Jewish people. You see, the, remember the Hebrew slaves were, they were slaves in a strange land. They were dependent on the Babylonians for their livelihoods, for any benevolence that the Babylonians might could muster toward them. They were subjugated by their political rulers. They had no voice. Their customs, their religion, their family structures, their stories were systematically being swept under a rug. Their way of seeing and living in the world was irrelevant to the Babylonians. They were being erased. The historian Josephus, Josephus tells us that the Hebrew people were taken to Babylon as spoils of war, and they were taken bound and chained. This was not a benevolent takeover. The prophet Ezra tells us in his prayer to God that they are all slaves. The Hebrew people were treated as sources of labor. There would have been forcible name changes, hair, and clothing. We meet Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego for the first time in Daniel 1 along with Daniel. They, just like other Hebrews, have been forced to assimilate or are being forced to assimilate into Babylonian culture. They had their Hebrew names changed. Their clothes were changed to match their Babylonian captors. Their only value to the king was that they were Jewish nobility. They were young. They were handsome. They were gifted. They were in the gifted class at school. They carried a 4.0 on the transcript. They read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every morning and read War and Peace at night for relaxation. These men were some of the best and brightest that Israel had to offer. They were the pretty ones, the smart ones, the lucky ones. The message translation describes these men as perfect specimens. 
and even still they are being used as forced labor for the king. In chapter 1, these four young men are in the king's training compound for three years, learning Babylonian literature and cultures and language. The king was training them for lifelong service to him. Now, the king offered all the Hebrew trainees the very best food and wine, particularly the best food and wine that came straight from the king's table. The four men refused the king's food and wine and made a deal with the steward to let them eat only water and vegetables and at the end of 10 days to check on them and see if they were any better or worse than the other Hebrew men who were in this compound. And so after 10 days, after water and vegetables, they did look better than the other Hebrew men. And so they were able to continue to just drink food and water, I mean, drink water and eat uh, vegetables in the king's compound. In chapter 3, we run into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again. And the king has this statue made that is 90 feet tall and about 9 feet thick. And it most likely, a lot of scholars believe, it actually had uh, some kind of face of Nebuchadnezzar on this statue. And most likely, this statue was erected in the same year that the Jerusalem temple was torn down. So I want you to imagine that with me for just a moment, that the Jewish people, their place where they connected with God had been decimated by their captors. And in the same year, this statue goes up with the face of this king And they're told, you have to worship and bow down to him. We know the Ten Commandments. What's one of the things God says? Don't worship any graven image. It definitely flew in the face of everything they held dear. And so enter the Chaldeans, known in my language as the brown nosers. They gleefully let the king know that there are three Hebrew men in his own court that will not bow down and worship the statue. Now, notice when Nebuchadnezzar questions these guys about their refusal. He asks them if this is true. But he doesn't even give them time to respond. He immediately says, he just bulldozes right over them like the drama queen that he is, telling them to bow down and worship the statue when they hear the music. And they refuse. And they tell Nebuchadnezzar, we believe that our God will save us, but even if God doesn't, we still refuse to bow down to your statue. So not only is the king angry that they refuse his order, he's been publicly publicly humiliated by these men the men he appointed in special positions of honor. Not only are they insubordinate, but they have very publicly betrayed Nebuchadnezzar. So they are thrown into the furnace. The men who throw them in there are immediately killed. In the uh, King James Version and the NIV Version, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace turned up seven times hotter than normal. And so the men that throw them into this furnace are immediately killed. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were inside this furnace, and people can see them inside this furnace, and they see these men walking around unharmed, not burning. And there's a fourth man in the fire too. And the text says it looked like an angelic being, like a son of God. So they all survive with their clothes intact. They don't even smell of smoke when they come out. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that their God is pretty amazing. And again, being the drama queen that he is, in the message translation, it reads like this. Therefore, I issue this decree. Anyone, anywhere, of any race, color, or creed who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be ripped to pieces, limb from limb, and their houses torn down. There's never been a God who can pull off a rescue like this. Nebuchadnezzar's always over the top. A simple 
yeah, their God is real, would have been sufficient. So what can we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is a takeaway from the lives of these men, is it stand for something or you'll fall for anything? Is it that we should stand against the secular culture of our day that demands we bow down to it? One commentator I read said, we will never be able to bring the world to Christ by becoming like it. Is that the lesson? Is it the lesson that we learned from VeggieTales and Rack Shack and Benny? That we should not be like everyone else and not bow down to the chocolate bunny? I'm sorry for those of you that will have that song in your head for the rest of the day. It's been in my head all weekend, so you're welcome. Is it the lesson that I was taught from this chapter when I was younger? That we should be different from secular culture. That we shouldn't listen to Madonna. We shouldn't watch HBO. We shouldn't read Catcher in the Rye. And we shouldn't learn about evolution. Does it mean that we don't drink, cuss, smoke, chew tobacco, or go out with girls who do? Maybe. And if those are your convictions, that's okay. Those are some of mine too. But after studying this chapter with a different lens than the one I used from years ago, I'm not sure that you could base those convictions on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not sure that this text supports abstaining from secular cultural norms. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 1 deny themselves of the king's food and wine and request to eat only water and vegetables, consider this. There is not a Levitical law preventing them from eating the king's food and wine. This was not forbidden for them. This was permissible for them. The vegetables that they ate would have been the same vegetables that the other Hebrew prisoners ate. They probably were sacrificed to Babylonian gods. Pagan so pagan deities and secular cultural norms, that was not the issue. The issue was the meat and the wine were foods of the privileged, food of festivity. When in mourning, when in mourning as all Hebrews should have been after being taken captive by a foreign invader, foods of festivity were to be avoided. Their brothers and sisters, also taken into captivity, were not being offered the food of the privileged. They were peasants. They were enduring forced labor, labor of a different, less pleasant type than these men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not resisting secular cultures, customs so they could be set apart or different. They weren't saying, hey, look at us. You can't make us listen to Britney Spears or watch Glee. They resisted Babylonian customs as a sign of peaceful, nonviolent protest against the dominant power over them and their people. They were peacefully resisting the dominant culture's offer of food and wine that had been stolen from the livelihoods conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Scholars Fannin and Mimi say, the colonized person is overpowered but not tamed. He is treated as an inferior, but he is not convinced of his inferiority, infer, inferiority. By resisting the king's offer of the best meat and best wine, these young Hebrew men assert that they, nor their people, will be tamed by their oppressors and will never consider themselves inferior. 
Nebuchadnezzar's statue of himself stands for political and economic power. To reduce Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story to piety on their part or the fall of the proud on Nebuchadnezzar's part is to miss the point. The New Interpreter's commentary says that Daniel 3 is about a particular kind of pride that comes from a system that derives its prestige and powerful power from the suffering of others. In short, it is the unique pride of the wealthy and the powerful. Who else can erect golden monuments? Who else can erect golden monuments but those in power, those with money, those with privilege? Who else can move Native Americans off their own land and claim it as their own? Who else can have African Americans stolen from their own home and have them forcibly put on a ship to America and then buy and sell their very human bodies into slavery? Who else can determine that women cannot vote or even apply for a credit card? Who else can label two different water fountains in their restaurant as white and colored? Who else can deny the rights of a gay couple to marry or the transgender teen the opportunity for a surgery that will finally make them feel at home in their body? Who else makes voting laws so absurdly restrictive that an African-American man in the 1950s would have to answer this question on a literacy test, how many bubbles in a bar of soap before they can even vote? Who else can erect these golden monuments? Only the Nebuchadnezzars of this modern world can do that. Only the powerful and only the privileged. Fannin and Mamie go on to say that Christian faith involves the refusal to bow before the golden statues of Nebuchadnezzar. But what is critical in the modern era is the realization that in our time, perk up and listen to this, in our time, Nebuchadnezzar is now perfectly capable of building his statues with the face of Jesus. Evil appears as an angel of light. The golden statues in America in 2021 are not secular music, books, or movies. Our golden statues are not secular culture, as maybe some of us were taught to believe. I think our golden statues might just be the American flag, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, a president. Our golden statues might just be consumerism, entitlement, white supremacy, my certain inalienable rights, MSNBC or Fox News. I'm not saying these are our golden statues, but what if they are? Who else can erect these golden monuments? The ones who hold power, the privileged ones. I believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be a call for all of us to look around. Who has been left out? Who still doesn't always get a fair shot? Who is being unjustly treated? Pastor Carlo Rodriguez says that privilege will deceive you. It will minimize the pain of others. It will tell you that your opinion is more important than their humanity. It will make you feel righteous while you oppress and marginalize. And it will lie to you about how God sees your privilege. Let me state the obvious. 
I am a middle-aged white woman from rural Mississippi. I have heard more racial epithets in my lifetime than I could possibly count. I have laughed uncomfortably at jokes that I should have railed against and punched someone in the face for. Things that should have caused me to speak up and say, hey, this is not okay. I have looked so far the other way at injustice toward African Americans and others who did not look like me nor love like me so I could pretend to be oblivious in my white bread privileged world. I am Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not nobility, but I did grow up in a white upper class middle, upper middle class home. I had my own car at 15, I wore the best clothes, and I vacationed at Disney World. I'm not handsome, but I'm not tragically unhandsome. I wasn't in the gifted program, but I always had good grades. I'd never read War and Peace, but I do have a subscription to the New York Times. And I would imagine at some point in my life, someone might consider me one of the lucky ones. Several years ago, <clears throat> my oldest son was a week away from turning 21 years old, and we got a phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning. He had been arrested for drinking and driving. So that was an awful thing. No one was hurt. Uh, thank God. We go to the jail. We take care of the whole thing. At the time, I was managing a cafe, a breakfast cafe, and there was an African-American woman who came in every a couple times a week with her two young children, two young boys. They were about probably about five and three. So all of that day that we did this with my son, the next day I go to work. And in comes this woman with her two boys. And it, it was such a conviction for me for the first time in my life that I'm, I'm just being completely open and transparent with you guys about where I am in this journey. But I realized that she had fears that I will never have when it came to her children. In all of that 24-plus-hour period, never one time did it occur to me, oh, my God, I hope he wasn't hurt. I hope Kobe wasn't hurt. I hope, hope somebody didn't shove him up against the car. I hope someone didn't wrench his arm out of socket. I hope someone didn't kick him to the ground. That never occurred to me, never. But when I met this African-American woman that morning, it drove me to my knees at the privilege that I have, the privilege that I have always had. In Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr. famous letter from a Birmingham jail, he says that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust, unjust law is no law at all. The letter goes on to say, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statues are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. 
It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Sometimes a law is just on its face and it's unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now there's nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is, in, when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on a ground that a higher moral law was at stake. If my privilege keeps me from seeing those without my would those without my privilege deserve just laws? If it keeps me from seeing that, that they are not, they don't have a just system, they don't have a just opportunity like I had, then that golden statue that I bow down, bow down to, well, it's not a good one. That golden statue for me is entitlement, selfishness, and the worst, comfortableness. My privilege should compel me to ask the of the system that holds back the marginalized, how long? And my privilege should compel me to answer along with my dismissed, systematically subordinated, overlooked, and disdained brother and sister, how long? I've asked my friend Terry Renner to come um, read Dr. King's speech, how long? When he told me that he's a political scientist and professor for many years and when he told me that he reads this every year for his students in his class I was like well of course you got to do it here for us so I've asked Terry to come read that for us how long will justice be crucified I come here today to tell you that it will not be long no matter how difficult the moment no matter how frustrating the hour it will not be long how long? Not long, because the truth crushed down to earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because ye shall reap what ye sow. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long, because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and his truth keeps marching on. Imago, as you go into your week, may you recognize the golden statues in your own life. May you take the time to reflect on your own privilege. And may you work to create the justice that God intended. Go in grace and peace. <laughs>